The other thing I will mention that was very formative for me is when I did finish my degree, I worked at St. Paul's Hospital just at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, where we we actually did not know what was causing all these young people, young men to get this terrible disease and die. And I think for me, learning compassion, but also really, really starting to respect and understand the very, very important role of knowledge and science both in terms of combating ignorance, but also in finding solutions to really pressing issues. So that was, again, another very, very formative experience. Welcome to The Journey Here, a podcast that profiles the stories of community builders from all walks of life. I'm your host, Steve Dooley. My guest today, I'm thrilled with my guest today. We have SFU's 10th President and Vice Chancellor, Dr. Joy Johnson. Joy, welcome to the journey here. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm really pleased to be here with you today. I'm so thrilled and I'm really looking forward to a conversation with you. As you know, the journey here, we like to just get to know the person behind the role a little bit first. So can we just start with uh, growing up, born in Falding, Saskatchewan? Uh, could you tell us a little bit about growing up there and maybe some of the memories and biggest influences on your life as a child? So, Steve, indeed, I was born in Spalding, Saskatchewan, but when I was 11 months old, my family moved to Ontario. Okay. Uh, but, you know, we went back to the prairies on a regular basis because that's where my grandparents were and much of the family. Um, we moved to Ontario because my dad was a pastor, a minister. And he got a job as a campus pastor, actually, at the University of Western Ontario. Wow. Yeah. So I grew up, you know, everyone talks about pastor's kids, PKs. Mm -hmm. I grew up a PK and there were four kids in my family, four of us in five years. So very close in age. And I was the third. Mm. Um, Growing up with, you know, siblings so close in age, it was a lot of fun. And yeah, so it was, um, it was good. It was a good time. And then when I was just about to start high school, uh, we moved again. And this time we moved across the country to Vancouver. And Mm -hmm. my father became a campus chaplain at the University of British Columbia. And so I've kind of grown up um, at universities, hanging out with students from, you know, very early age. And so that's been really, you know, formative for me, uh, that exposure to universities and being part of university life. Were there any challenges for you moving across the country? I mean, I I think it's always hard for kids to leave their friends, right? And to start anew. Um, But there was some excitement about it as well. I got my own bedroom um, for the first time. (laughs) You know, in Ontario, there were six of us living in about 600 square feet with one bathroom. It was a bit of a challenge. Hmm. Um, So this felt, you know, we moved into a house with three bedrooms. It felt palatial. So that was wonderful. And um, it was a new place and new opportunities. And I do like adventure a little bit too. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I'm reminded in in a recent conversation we had when we met with uh, the Surrey Urban Indigenous Leadership Committee, you mentioned that your family in Saskatchewan, they were settlers and kind of homesteaders for the land. And you had some really interesting comments about recognizing that in, in the context of Indigenous work. So my great-grandparents came from Norway and Sweden. They were very poor, and um, there was a famine, and there was no work, and they immigrated 
um, first to the United States, and then came up through what became known as the Red River Valley Settlement and homesteaded in Saskatchewan and in Alberta. And homesteading meant that, you know, basically the government said, go stake out land and that's yours and you can farm it. And they lived in a sod hut on the prairies. Now, what was interesting to me, and I talked to my mom about this, my mom is 86 years old, and I mm -hmm. we had a conversation recently, is that, you know, the government was, quote, giving away land, and my family benefited by, you know, claiming land. No one asked whose land this was. Right. No one asked about Indigenous peoples and their connection to the land. And I think it's not until many years later, as we move into work of reconciliation, that I've kind of the penny has dropped for me and for my mom, too, which is really interesting about how much our family has benefited mm -hmm. by farming, uh, raising families, um, you know, because they came to Canada and had this wonderful, quote, gift um, mm -hmm. and never thought through the implications. Mm -hmm. Is there still family there now? Yeah, there are still family, both in Alberta. Mostly the farms now um, that my family has are mostly in Alberta now. So, uh, yeah, just outside of Camrose. Yeah. Okay. So let's now get on to your uh, university career. So uh, 1981, a Bachelor of Science registered nursing. Uh, mm -hmm. How did you decide to go into the nursing profession? What was the trigger for that? My mom's a nurse. Mm. And um, my mom worked um, when I was growing up and she would come home and tell me about the patients she was taking care of. And I just thought it was so interesting, um, you know, the stories um, about, you know, the challenges these people were experiencing, the work, the camaraderie on the floor with other nurses, the dynamics. I just really um, thought it was interesting. And she said to me, Joy, if you're going to go into nursing, you've got to get a degree in nursing. So at that time, there were still hospital programs available. But she really mm -hmm. said to me, if it's going to be a career, you go and get your degree. And that's I went to UBC and um, did my nursing degree. And I was actually quite young, I'd skipped a grade and I was 16 when I started university. And it was a really good program for me because it was quite structured. Um, and I did need it in those days. Um, and uh, so I enjoyed it very, very much. And it was a back in those days, Steve, it was a what was called a two plus two program. Yeah. So we had two years to do our RN and two more for our degree. So I was a registered nurse at 18. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's crazy to think about it. I couldn't drink, but I could give out narcotics. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's just unbelievable when I think about back to it now. Yeah. Um, but it, I really it was um Really amazing work. I really did enjoy my career as well as a nurse. Well, I'm just curious, what grade did you skip? Back in the day in Ontario, they had this thing called acceleration. They had grade 13 yeah. um, when I was going to school. And so they would accelerate you. You do two years in one, basically. Uh -huh. So I skipped grade four and then came out to BC and with a late birthday and they had only had grade 12. All of a sudden, you know, yeah, it's quite incredible. So you're a registered nurse at 18 and you yeah. begin your career. Yeah. Um, staff nurse at UBC and you went to Burns Lake. Yeah. So remember I said it was a two plus two program. Yeah. So I had the summer between third and fourth year when I was a registered nurse, but still needed to go back to school. And I had four months off. Okay. And it was that summer that I went to Burns Lake okay. and um, I wanted to go to Burns Lake because it was a small hospital and you had to do everything yeah. um, from delivering babies to working in the ER, there was just two nurses on at night. And um, it was a uh, it was crazy. 
Wow. And it was just really, it was an adventure for me. Um, there was a nurse's residence and a friend went with me. The two of us got hired. We live in the nurse's residence and uh, worked at this hospital. There were many days that I was just scared out of my mind, wondering what the heck I was doing, mm. but learned a lot <laughs> and learned to jump into situations to problem solve, to admit when I didn't have a clue what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, challenging for sure. We're going to quickly go through your uh, other aspects of your academic career in a minute. But I'm just curious, in that time of your life, are there things that you learned then that you're still using to this day in your current role as uh, president of a major Canadian university? Well, you know, um, I would say as a nurse, Steve, compassion is what you learn. Mm -hmm. uh, you learn to listen and pay attention. And those are skills that put you in good shape no matter where you go in life. The other thing I will mention that was very formative for me is when I did finish my degree, I worked at St. Paul's Hospital just at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, mm. where we, we actually did not know what was causing all these young people, young men to get this terrible disease and die. And I think for me, both in terms of compassion, learning compassion, but also really, really starting to respect and understand the very, very important role of knowledge and science both in terms of combating ignorance, but also in finding solutions to really pressing issues. So that was, again, another very, very formative experience. So these beautiful young men you described and, and the compassion, I can get a sense of that. Do you have any particular memories of, of any of those young men that you that you well, you know, a number of the nurses were gay themselves and yeah. were showing up sick. So that was um, yeah. really heartbreaking. And I had nursing colleagues that refused to care for these patients. I worked in intensive care. So when they were in intensive care, they were in very rough shape and most of them died. And it was like a war zone, partly because, you know, we were short staffed, but also it was just the emotional toll of having people, you know, in this terrible, terrible circumstance. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was, that was very, very rough, I would say. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. And uh, I have a sense from that, like that must have been very, very challenging and the compassion being able to show up emotionally. You must have learned a little bit about self-care then as well. Yeah. Um, I was young too, right? Yeah. 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 I had great friends and, um, you know, great community, good people around me. And I think that's for me always been very important in terms of taking care of myself mm -hmm. to feel like I'm just, yeah, have others to lift me up. Okay. Well, I really appreciate that. And let's now, you've kind of alluded to it already, but let's shift into your shift into kind of a research career. What was the catalyst for that? What shifted for you to go from being a you know applied practical nurse to kind of wanting to pursue a research career? So I was working at St. Paul's Hospital, and um, I started to think about my career, like where am I going? What mm -hmm. do I want to do? And I thought, oh, I kind of like to be a head nurse, <laughs> maybe a supervisor. Uh, so I thought, if I'm going to do that, I should go and get a graduate degree. So I started to research graduate programs, and um, I applied to uh, the University of Alberta and was accepted at the University of Alberta and went there to do my master's degree. And my partner, Pam, um, who I'd met, uh, she uh, was a nurse as well. We went mm. together and uh, off we went to Alberta bravely. And uh, Pam did her bachelor's and I did my master's and we both stayed on and got the research bug. 
And um, while I was there, surrounded by amazing people, really inspired in terms of the research they were doing. So I stayed on and did my master's and my PhD at the University mm. of Alberta, and Pam did all three degrees there. Wow. So it was a great time. Uh, that time in Alberta, education was very well funded. We were very well supported with scholarships. It was a great time. Wow. And so, and I know Pam's at UBC in a, in a very senior role. Had you been thinking about leadership roles at that time or just the research? Yeah, you know, I got my PhD and I thought, well, the next step is to become a professor, right? To get an academic appointment. Yeah. And so that's what I was looking for. I actually applied for a few different places and um, got an offer at UBC and ended up coming out to UBC, uh-huh. which was great. Uh, that's where I'd done my undergraduate. So it's kind of interesting to come back. But yeah, you know, it's kind of one step at a time. Okay, I'll become a professor and um, follow that path for a while. Mm-hmm. And then other things started to open up for me. Mm-hmm. So um, let's now kind of look at you as Joy the leader. When do you call yourself Dr. Johnson versus I'm just, not just, I'm Joy? So I uh, do encourage people to call me Joy. And the only time I let people call me President Johnson or Dr. Johnson is when I see other people getting titles utilized. So, you know, if I'm introduced to, uh, you know, Dr. or President Santa Ono, I expect to be introduced as President Joy Johnson. There's mm-hmm. equivalency there. But right. I would also say I was giving, a, you know, an example of, you know, when I'm introduced to, um, you know, the chief of one of our local nations, you know, there's a reciprocity that President Johnson's being introduced to uh, Chief Thomas. So, you know, it's just a respect for title. But you know, for the most part, I'm not too caught up in that. And I enjoy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Would I look at you as a leader? Um, and I'm not trying to embarrass you in any way. I just think of you as this really empathetic, compassionate, caring leader. Um, and maybe that maybe some of that does come from your experience at St. Paul's and others. But maybe just talk a little bit about your your sense of head and heart leadership, because I I definitely see that in you and maybe our listeners could learn from kind of your perspective on that. And I've had a few leadership roles in my life and I've over time taken some very important lessons from both my experience, but also observing other people. And I used to think that what it meant to be a leader was to be in control, to know all the answers, to be able to give clear, precise direction to others, you know, this kind of command and control notion of leadership. And I would look up to people who, you know, I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's probably what a leader should be. And then I started to look around me and I saw other forms of leadership, people who were just being themselves. And um, I realized that when you're a leader, it's not something, a hat that you put on. You can be yourself. It means that you also have to take on certain responsibilities, still think strategically, take on the authority that you need to take on, but it doesn't mean that you can't have fun. You can't be compassionate, can't care about people. I I think just recognizing that for me, at least that I could continue to be myself and didn't have to be something else was pretty liberating. And it helped me realize I didn't have to quote, act like a leader. I could be joy. And once I kind of hit that realization, it made things a lot easier for me. Mm -hmm. Any challenges around being a leader? Any obstacles? Oh, yeah. Tons of obstacles. <laughs> and I do say this seriously. I've, I applied for jobs and didn't get them. Mm-hmm. And I also say, and I say particularly to women, because, you know, women, I think, often do not apply for a job until they feel they're overqualified. 
Hmm. And um, I, I like to remind people, you don't get a job you don't apply for. Hmm. And so at one point in my career, I was um, a professor. I had made kind of gone through the ranks. I was a professor and I wanted to look for another opportunity. I was starting to think about, okay, what's my next opportunity going to be? And that time I applied to be a dean and um, I was young. I hadn't really had much leadership experience at all and didn't get the job and nor should I have. Um, mm. But it was good for me because I got great feedback. Uh, help me understand what else I might need to do to move into a job like that. So maybe not an obstacle per se, but a challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, I think as a leader, the other, and I think everyone can relate to this, you know, some of the most difficult issues that one has to face are helping to create expectations, give feedback to people. That's hard stuff sometimes, right? Um, you know, dealing with issues that aren't going well and having to manage that. Those are tough days for anybody. And I've certainly had my share of those. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not smooth sailing, but that's true for many people in, in many, many different roles. But I think in particular, what I've found for me, Steve, is to try, you know, when you experience failure, to learn from it, right? You know, and, and even as a professor, gosh, you experience failure all the time. You don't get the grant, you don't get the paper published, you know, um, you, you, you learn from that and you say, okay, well, what next? What else can I do? I mean, I feel like I've been pretty lucky in terms of my career and uh, the trajectory of my career, but it's not as if there hasn't been uh, roadblocks along the way as well. And I think it's important to, for people to recognize that. Thank you, Joy. And our listeners are definitely going to want to know about you and your current role as President and Vice Chancellor of SFU. You came to SFU as the VP Research and International in 2014? 2014, yeah. 2014. Um, what was that work like for you? I had moved on from, uh, and I'd had this other leadership opportunity as the scientific director of the Institute of Gender and Health with the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. That was a really nice transition role for me. Mm -hmm. And I had staff in Ottawa and staff in um, Vancouver, and it was a part-time gig. So I also Mm -hmm. had my professorship at UBC, and I was traveling back and forth from Ottawa and leading this institute, which was really uh, great. And so I did that for seven years and then went into the vice president research role. And, you know, I think that it was a bit of a leap for me. And uh, it's interesting. I talked to Andrew Ketterer after this a little bit, and I don't think I was a shoe in for that job. Hmm. Um, When I think about it, I think it surprised people that I came into that role, not having been a dean, not having been a department head, having been a professor and the scientific director position, uh, I think people kind of wondered about this, again, a bit of an upstart thinking that she can become the vice president of research, but I was interested in the role and I prepared myself and I got the job and I was thrilled because I was really interested in what SFU was doing. I love the vision of the engaged university mm. and um, thought it would, there was a really great team. So, yeah, so came to SFU and, you know, it's kind of drinking through the water fountain, you know, mm-hmm. the water fountain, drinking through the fire hose mm-hmm. um, initially, right? A lot of learning. And um, thinking about where we can go to support research at SFU, what are the kind of things that we need to put in place um, to continue to grow, you know, research capacity, supports for research across the university. And I love that strategy stuff. It was great. It was fun. And uh, so the team was fantastic. I worked with great people in my office and with the, across the portfolio. Things really um, hummed along. It was really a lot of fun. 
but in addition to that, it was a lot of fun to um, to work with the executive team, to work with Andrew Petter. I learned a lot from him. Mm-hmm. He was very generous um, with his time with me as well. And um, it was a great move for me to come to Simon Fraser University. I remember our chair, Jamie Stewart, talking about the search process for the new president of SFU. And in a meeting, he said, we searched all over the world, you know, gave everybody all over the world the chance to show if they wanted this job. And and the best person was right here, uh, Joy Johnson. So let's talk a little bit about your your presidency. So it's been it's been 14 months now. Yeah, 14 months. Yeah. How's it felt those 14 months? Well, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. You know, when I applied for the job, no one, you know, the global pandemic was not even heard of. When I was offered the job, it still wasn't even on the horizon. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're looking forward to taking on the role and it's kind of like, you know, mic drop. Um, You know, I've got to take on this role during the midst of a global pandemic when people are pretty strapped and feeling stressed and strained, et cetera. So I would say it's been a, a hard initial year. Um, Partly because it's been so hard on our community. Uh, I know it's been hard on our faculty, staff and students, and I see the toll it's taken. And that's that's tough because you want to you know, you want to be able to support people and you want to make sure that they're feeling safe and supported. And it's also been a bit tough because um, I couldn't get out and about initially. Right. I was doing Zoom calls. And um, I'm a very social person, so I enjoy getting out, meeting people and engaging with people and couldn't do any of that. Mm. So there were constraints, but I will say maybe two things about that. One is, uh, I think the upside was that I was from within the university. So Jamie said, Mm. uh, you know, searched high and low and, you know, hired joy from within. I think in retrospect, I can't imagine how hard it would have been to come and take up a presidency if you knew nothing about this place. So Mm. I I really count my blessings that I was an internal candidate and knew a lot of the players and had a sense of what needed to get done. And the other thing, and this was a bit of a a blessing as well, is that it really gave me a chance in my first year to focus internally. I couldn't travel. I couldn't do a lot of external meetings, although I did do meetings on Zoom. But I really have been able to, I think, spend a lot of time focusing on the community um, starting to put some things in place in terms of processes, trying to think about some of the supports that are required for the university as we move forward. And, and that, I think, has been also uh, an upside. And it's just now, 14 months in, starting to lift my gaze, starting to think about what next, um, mm-hmm. you know, what else do we need to do? And we're going to, and we're starting a strategic planning process. So that's fun. Great. And did you want to speak to your, uh, your three priorities you, that you kind of landed on as president? Yeah, so when I was inter- being interviewed for president, you know, you have to go and talk about your strategic vision for the university or, you know, what you, I think they're asked me to prepare 10 or 15 minutes. And it was in that, it was in that interview that I talked about three areas that I felt were really important to focus on. And so those areas are equity, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, making sure that we are an inclusive campus where everyone can show up as their best authentic self, Mm -hmm. Um, reconciliation, decolonization, indigenization, um, and um, where we really honor the commitments we've made, but think about what else we need to do around becoming a a campus, a university that is an instrument of reconciliation. 
And then thirdly, um, the student experience. I felt it was really important for a president to um, center the student experience and to be thinking about it, looking for ways to continue to support the learning, great learning experience for our students inside and outside of the classroom. What I haven't said a lot of, and I, I will say now, is I see these as three preconditions to be an excellent university. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't value excellent research. Uh, I don't value, you know, um, academic excellence. But these, to be excellent, you need to make sure that these other ingredients are at play. And SFU is an excellent research-intensive university, and we have so much we can contribute. Um, so as I said, we're, you know, this first year really focusing on the culture and what we're doing. Um, but I think there are opportunities um, as we move forward to kind of continue our journey um, as we grow as an institution, grow mm -hmm. our reputation, grow our impact in the world, because we have such an opportunity to make a difference in the world. Great. I, I kind of want you to speak directly to our students. Um, and I'm going to ask one of these corny questions. It's sort of one of these corny questions you get, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I'm going to take a chance here. Uh, you know, you've had such a great career uh, and you continue to have a great career um, and thrilled to have you here as SFU's president. Is there anything right now at your stage in your life where you're at that you would look back and tell your 17 year old self where you were at then? Yeah, I guess maybe um, I tell my 17 year old self, like, enjoy the ride. Uh, you know, it's okay that you don't have it all figured out. It's okay. You don't know where your career is taking you, but keep your eyes open for opportunities and grab them, grab them when you can. Mm. When I was 17, well, when I was five years old, who says I want to grow up and be a university president? I never, like, it didn't occur to me when I was five or 17 or 25 or 35 for that matter. Mm -hmm. But you start down a road and opportunities present themselves. And it's really about taking up opportunities, you know, putting yourself out there, taking a chance, sometimes getting rejected, um, but learning from that. Um, so that's what I would say is that, you know, to my 17 year old self, enjoy the ride, think about what you can do to contribute and do the best you can. Don't worry about it so much. Okay. And, you know, looking back at that work you were talking about at St. Paul's, I keep thinking about that, but I also know during the pandemic, uh, mm. it's been challenging for people. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about this, the importance of self-care. Yeah. Um, how have you been able to do that? Uh, through this pandemic and, and any advice you might give to your colleagues here at the university and not just at the university in the community writ large. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I just to reflect, first of all, Steve, on what you just said, there are so many similarities to think about a pandemic. Um, we initially did not know it was the SARS-CoV-2 virus, like trying to track down the virus, trying to find a back. We found a vaccine in this case, people were dying. People were afraid there are some parallels that I really find myself thinking a lot about. Mm. And um, we need to recognize that it has taken a toll on people. We have people in our SFU community and our community as a whole who have lost family and friends mm. to SARS-CoV-2. I think we forget that, right? Mm. Like we're so focused on trying to get back, et cetera. Other people have felt pretty traumatized um, working at home feeling isolated 
Um, so I would say, you know, and we've talked about this already in this interview today, to be compassionate about where people are at and to understand that beneath the surface, some of the people are really dealing with some pretty heavy duty stuff. So that's number one. And then I think we all also have an obligation to try and take care of ourselves and, you know, find things that bring us joy, um, find things that can help us rebalance a little bit. And so, you know, I've got a great partner. Um, I actually find being outside so helpful, right? Mm -hmm. You know, being in nature, going mm -hmm. for a hike, going for a kayak, being on the water. Those are things that really help me feel restored. But other people have other things. And I think we all need to find those things that can help us feel restored um, because it's been a bit of a grunt, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, it's been tough. Uh, and I do worry. I, I worry a lot about the mental health of people around me. And I know it's, it's been very, very tough. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I'm going to be gentle with each other and just make sure that we give everybody a little bit of space to, to take care of themselves as, as you have said. Mm -hmm. That's it. We're coming to the close here pretty soon, but um, I guess kind of ending on a note of optimism. In the next two to three years, what are you most optimistic about when you think about where SFU is going, where, you, where you're going? Yeah, you know, we have a fantastic community here. Mm -hmm. We've got a fantastic university. So I'm really excited about the years ahead. Um, I'm excited about our potential. I don't think we've realized in any way, shape or form our full potential to make a difference on pressing issues of the world. I am excited about what we're going to do around sustainability and climate change. I am mm -hmm. excited about the possibility of new programs, programs like a new medical program focused in partnership with First Nations people, like amazing to think about that opportunity. I'm excited about agri-tech and thinking about food and how we're going to protect our food sources in British Columbia, because that's so key um, to all of us. I'm excited about the future, about new programs, but also lifting up what we're doing across the academy. Because I, I recognize that a university degree is a game changer for, mm. for people. It's a path to a career. Uh, it's a path to um, being a full participant in society, um, understanding complex dynamics. So I'm excited about the opportunities that we have at SFU to make a difference in people's lives as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm just kind of where to, like, how do we get, you know, like there's so many opportunities, right? So let's think through how to harness our energy, figure out what to focus on and figure out how to drive more change um, that really is required for all of us. Okay. I just have one last question. Is, is there anything else you'd like to share with the students, faculty, and staff, and our community members that maybe I didn't ask about today? Maybe I'll just tell one story. Oh, I love stories. One story for you. So um, I love my grandfather. His name was Jacob, and he was a minister as well. I was surrounded by them. That's a whole other story, another podcast, another day about being a lesbian and having a lot of ministers around you. But I love my grandfather. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. Very, very religious, though. Didn't drink, mm. didn't dance, didn't play cards. Mm. So we were at a family wedding and, um, oh my God, there was going to be dancing at the wedding. And everyone is worried about my grandfather being at this wedding and they were going to, going to be dancing and what would grandpa do? And so I was in my probably early thirties. So grandpa was at the table and the music started up and, you know, some fantastic song, some Beatles song came on and 
I got up to dance and um, with my siblings and, you know, nieces and nephews were there and we're all up dancing. And my partner, Pam, was sitting at the table and um, she was sitting beside my grandfather. Uh, so I, I waved to Pam. I say, come join us, you know, we're just signaling to her. Yeah. Anyhow, my grandfather thought I was signaling to him and he got up and he danced. Wow. And that night, my grandfather danced with all of his grandchildren. The reason I tell you this story, Steve, is that it's one I really hold tight because we can all change and we can all change our minds and be open to new experiences. And my grandfather at 93 years old danced for the first time and opened his heart to be able to do that. I'm just like, wow, that's fantastic. So, you know, what can we open our hearts to do, right? Like, it's just, it's an inspiration for me. It continues to be. Well, you just gave that as an inspiration to me and to all the listeners. We are going to have to have you back for another podcast to talk more about that. Uh, I would love that. Would you be open to coming back? Absolutely. It's been a, it's been a pleasure, Steve. Always fun to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. And that ends our show for today. And we'll see you next time on The Journey Here. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Journey Here. We hope you'll join us again on our next episode for more stories of people making an impact in their community. You can find The Journey Here on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.